Um, so osteosarcoma uh, is the most common bone tumor affecting children, adolescents, and young adults. There's about 400 patients under 20 years of age, uh, and there's this bimodal distribution uh, that's classically described and, and on most of our board kind of tests. Um, I care mostly about this mode, um, although not that I don't care about these people. But uh, this is where we're focusing. Um, and you'll note that uh, the peak um, incidence in age is during the most rapid growth phase of uh, boys and of girls uh, in that 10 to 14 year old age and the boys in the 15 to 19. Um, oops, sorry. And uh, these uh, lesions typically occur in the metaphysis of bones. Um, this is the distribution of bones uh, in this schematic. And you'll note that most of these tumors occur in the long bones. Um, not many occur in the axial skeleton in the pelvis or in the spine uh, or the rib or the skull. They're much less common in those uh, locations. Um, and uh, the histology is fairly simple compared to a lot of tumors that we see. Um, there is this uh, background of pink gelatinous malignant osteoid with new bone formation in these, um, and this is at low power, but these cells are um, a little bit larger than, your, uh, than many other sarcomas we see uh, in the small round blue cell uh, tumors, at least compared to those. And, and this tumor doesn't stain very well. Um, it doesn't have any specific markers. And so it's, it's really a uh, diagnosis of general histology, primarily just the H&E stain, along with the clinical history. And um, I don't think any of the pathologists are here, but they they will tell you that this is a diagnosis that needs to be made in concert with the radiology and the clinical um, setting. And, and that, that is uh, critical for them. And, and they often do have to look at the radiology to make that diagnosis. So just a few examples of typical presentations that we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, so a 23-year-old woman complains of low back pain and hip pain on and off for six to eight months. An 11-year-old girl who was sailing and hit her shin, and the pain uh, initially went away, but then got worse. A 20-year-old young man who was playing basketball and then complained of swelling of the thigh. Uh oh, we're having issues. Uh, playing basketball, complained of swelling of the thigh uh, without any trauma. And a 10-year-old girl with thigh pain over about four weeks and recently was waking at night from sleep due to pain. So you can see just from these examples, there's a, a large variety of ways that patients present with this tumor. Um, the classic uh, description, though, is this waking at night. Uh, typically, growing pains that kids get, which some of the pediatricians afterwards can tell me what that actually is, but kids sometimes get pain. Uh, usually it's bilateral, and it usually does not wake them up at night. Um, if it wakes them up at night, it doesn't mean that it's a tumor, but it certainly should be a little bit of a red flag to, to pay attention to. So our diagnosis and staging uh, includes the following. An x-ray of the primary site. Uh, this is a classic x-ray that um, could be in a textbook. Actually, I think it is in a textbook um, for a sunburst pattern. Um, this is in the metaphysis, and you can see if it highlights um, fairly well in, high, in uh, where it's blown up. 
these uh, striations coming off the side, um, and that, that's very classic for a bone tumor. Um, this is uh, an MRI, uh, and the MRI um, is interesting in that it will highlight the planes of tissue and the extent of the lesion, but X-ray and CT scan often highlight the bone destruction aspect of the tumor a little bit uh, better. Um, typically, we uh, like an open biopsy, but, but a core biopsy um, is usually adequate. So that's when they just you know, stick a needle in it and take a small piece versus making an incision and taking what I would consider more of a chunk. Uh, we like chunks a little bit more, so there's extra tissue in case there's any difficulty or if there's any special studies. And certainly, um, when it comes to research testing, it's uh, nice to have extra tissue if the family does elect to participate in in research. Uh, for the staging, we need to obtain a bone scan because osteosarcoma could spread to other bone. Uh, the most likely uh, site of spread is the chest, and so we typically will obtain a chest CT scan, and this is just an example showing um, a few nodules that are not all uh, very obvious upon first glance, except for the arrows pointing at them. Uh, but certainly the one up here is uh, more clear, and you can see these small nodules. They are often not gigantic, but there can be many of them. Um, oops, sorry, Wait, let me just make sure. And, and a PET scan um, is uh, an optional scan at this point, but we do like to have these. Um, if they are done, then we don't need a bone scan because PET uh, looks at metabolic activity and will highlight areas of bone that are active, uh, typically active with tumor uh, over normal activity. Um, and it will also highlight disease outside of the bones, which is an advantage, uh, uh, including the lymph nodes and if there's any extraskeletal uh, masses that are large. But in the lungs, the PET scans are not as um, critical as they these tiny nodules won't light up on PET because they need to be greater than a centimeter if they, if they uh, are positive. So the treatment um, is fairly simple, and uh, I like to keep it simple in my mind of how to approach uh, this tumor and, and most solid tumors. So typically we just give neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which means chemotherapy before doing anything to the tumor itself then surgical remover, removal of the primary and all sites of disease. Um, the timing of the all sites of disease might not be af right after the chemo, but certainly the primary tumor is removed then. And then adjuvant chemotherapy, which is chemotherapy after uh, tumor removal. And that's it. Simple, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, in order for me to understand where the future um, of this field needs to go, I often think about the past and how we got to where we are. Um, I feel like that should be the start of like an American history course, and it could lead me into a political discussion right now. That's probably not good. But, but, um, but I wanted to read you this quote from uh, what could be my uh, favorite old um, documented history of osteosarcoma. Uh, so this was taken from uh, the earliest uh, paper that I could find in the literature on osteosarcoma, 
and, uh, and the description. And there's a few things that are just amazing about this, but um, I'll just read this out loud. The patient who bore the operation extremely well now became faint. Two or three terrific gasps followed, and she appeared to all present in articular mortis. She was carried immediately to bed when, to the great satisfaction and relief of all present, she began to revive. Uh, and, I mean, one of the amazing things, not only that this was in 1843, um, but I love this guy's name, R.A. Frogley. And he was a lawyer. Um, amazing. I mean, you know, I guess we lawyers did surgery. Um, so, yeah. And, uh, I mean, there apparently wasn't anesthesia. And this tumor in the picture that they drew, the, the artistic um, picture, which, which I'll have to remember next time to, to show, but it, was like, it looked like about a 19-centimeter tumor. I mean, this thing was gigantic. But this was the treatment that was done uh, up until the early 1970s. Almost all patients re received amputations. Um, it was an awful outcome. Very few survived five years. And so chemotherapy was introduced into the 1970s, and the controversies that ensued were amazing. Um, so I'm going to go through some of that, and, uh, and it will lead us to, to what we're doing now. So in uh, 1974, uh, when Dr. Altman started the Yukon Oncology Department, uh, there was the first report of improved prognosis with adjuvant methotrexate uh, by Dr. Jaffe. And uh, then doxorubicin and cisplatin were shown to improve prognosis alone or in combination regimens um, in, in a few different studies. But there were no randomized studies. And the Mayo Clinic then reported a retrospective analysis demonstrating a 40% survival without chemotherapy. Uh, so that's kind of in conflict to the prior thousands of years that patients almost all died um, of this tumor within five years. But, but they had that data. And so a randomized trial in the Mayo Clinic in the late 70s, randomized to methotrexate, failed to show a benefit. Um, now there's a couple questions that that could raise that um, hopefully people start thinking about when, when there is a, a randomized study at one institution. Um, but this is pretty classic. Uh, science for the day and, and created a lot of controversy. But it was recognized that, um, that in order to study this in the least biased possible way, that there needed to be a multi-institutional study, not a single institution study. And so from 1982 to 1984, there was the um, multi-institutional osteosarcoma study. And there were 113 patients randomized to surgery alone versus chemotherapy. When I look at this data, there are two things that come to mind. One is it's the most amazing difference in survival curves that I think we'll ever see in a study. Um, and I'll show you the curve in a second. And, uh, and the second thing is that this happened in the 80s. This wasn't even that long ago. It's amazing to me. Um, so a lot of progress has been made, um, you know, but not that long time ago. So this is the curve um, and the chemotherapy arm up top. And, and there, you'll notice there's two lines. And um, the reason that is is because 
they offered randomization to patients and allowed them to refuse randomization but choose the arm they wanted. Um, and so that second line there that is essentially matches up uh, from, you know, by the time they get out uh, to three years is um, patients who got chemotherapy but refused the randomization. So, so all of these patients together got chemotherapy up top and the control were patients who just received surgery. Um, that's pretty amazing uh, result there. But that wasn't the end of the controversies. Um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, they had a protocol that they named T10, uh, and it introduced neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And they argued in, in their introduction to the study that, that the, it would increase the ability to do limb-sparing surgeries, um, allowing extra time for prosthetic development. But there were a lot of concerns that were raised for giving chemotherapy to a large tumor, uh, leading to increased resistance and increased micrometastatic disease. And microscopic metastatic disease is, was demonstrated best in the prior study in the fact that you remove the primary, but yet they, in 90% of patients, have a recurrence. That, that essentially demonstrated that there had to have been microscopic metastatic disease. And so this concern now became um, more prevalent. And the pediatric oncology group, which was the predecessor to our current children's oncology group, developed a randomized trial of neoadjuvant therapy versus adjuvant therapy. So in other words, give chemo up front and then surgery and then more chemo, or just do surgery up front and give chemo. And this demonstrated no statistical significant difference um, and essentially gave uh, support to giving neoadjuvant therapy and allowing for better prosthetics and better limb-sparing surgeries. Now, I've always looked at this and noted that there was, that the immediate surgery group is slightly higher, but the statistics were clear. There was no difference. It's not a gigantic thousand-patient study, um, but this was a national multi-institution study that, that statistically did not show a difference. So that ended at least one controversy in terms of comfort of giving chemotherapy up front. But during this, you know, this time through the 70s and 80s, um, it was recognized that if you do neoadjuvant therapy and look at the necrosis of the tumor, that there was a difference in outcome. So you could divide patients into two groups of good versus poor, and good necrosis was considered to have greater than 90% necrosis, um, or cell kill, and poor necrosis was less than 90%. If you had good necrosis, you had greater than 90% five-year event-free survival. And patients with poor necrosis had 50 to 60% five-year survival. So there were lots of attempts to increase the number of good responders. It seems natural that if that data is correct, then if you just get more people with better necrosis, that that would cure more patients. But interestingly, those attempts have failed to lead to an increased survival um, and, in fact, have diminished the utility of even using necrosis grading. It's also recognized that um, specific locations have a poor prognosis regardless of necrosis. So just to show you a couple curves, and I, and I should mention, I know that uh, hopefully those in the room are familiar with looking at Kaplan-Meier curves. 
in, in essence, what you're looking is the survival curve, and each drop, each drop down is an event. Um, and we say event rather than necessarily a death, because an event doesn't an event when we're talking about event-free survival, um, which this is an example of, is a relapse. It could be a second malignant neoplasm. It could be another cancer that they develop. So it's not necessarily just um, survival of the cancer. It's it's an event. Um, and uh, and you can see that if you look at the um, those that have greater than 90% necrosis, which is up top, have a much greater prognosis. Those that have early progression, which is this bottom line, clearly do worse, and that intuitively, I think, is not surprising. Um, when we look at pelvic site as a specific location of osteosarcoma, um, it's noted that whether you have metastatic disease or not, just having pelvic osteosarcoma is a poor prognostic indicator. Um, and the prognosis is just as bad as somebody who has a leg tumor with metastatic disease than uh, if you just have pelvic disease, whether or not you have metastatic disease. Um, now, we don't know the reasons for this, but more complicated to remove the tumor with a clear margin in the pelvis. They're typically larger because they can grow larger before you have symptoms. Um, there could be other biological factors that we don't understand. Uh, and then further controversies have ensued, including what is the best chemotherapy. So in, in the 1980s, that multi-institutional study used the combination of methotrexate, doxorubicin, and cisplatin, which we acutely abbreviate MAP. Um, and, the, and so the problem is that the utility of methotrexate is being questioned. I mentioned uh, the Mayo Clinic study that showed that methotrexate um, in a randomized study didn't have any benefit. There have been non-randomized studies um, that may have uh, selection bias. There's randomized studies suggesting better outcome with um, high-dose versus medium-dose methotrexate, indicating that methotrexate is not only important, but the more you give, the better it is. Um, and there's single-agent data that are indicating a 40% survival. So, there really um, is significant data that has accumulated now over time that makes it very clear that methotrexate is not only the, a drug that has activity, but that high-dose methotrexate is uh, more important than low-dose or none at all. Ifosfamide is another drug that has had a lot of controversy around the world in terms of whether this should be used up front or not. Um, it clearly has activity in the relapse setting. And it's uh, believed to contribute to good outcomes when added to multi-agent therapy. But when added to the MAP regimen, it doesn't, um, it has uh, not been shown uh, to have an increase in necrosis. So there was a, uh, a meta-analysis done of all of the trials that included three, four, or five drugs even. Um, and in this survival curve, um, that just shows the difference between using three versus four drugs, there was no difference um, in, in outcomes. So the um, two lines here that are overlapping show no significant difference uh, regardless of three or four drugs. And so it was essentially, based on this meta-analysis, believed that, that you could um, choose almost any three of the drugs. You could use IFOS with docs and 
methotrexate, or you could, you know, you can mix and match them if you if you really wanted. Um, in the U.S., we've sort of stuck with uh, this map, but there's been multiple clinical trials that have been done um, over time, and and over time, with most cancers, we've seen improved prognosis. In osteosarcoma, we've seen a complete failure to improve the outcome despite all of these trials. And you'll see it jumps around a little bit here. Um, but what I'd like to show you on this slide um, is a, uh, a Excel graph that I had put together taking um, each of the major international or national studies done around the world um, between the years of 1991 and 2008. And, uh, took the Kaplan-Meier curves and, um, and overlaid them in, in uh, one graph here. And you can see, and I, and I purposefully ordered these um, sort of in a mixed up um, uh, by year. And you know, you'll see that you know, a study down here is 2001, up here is 1998, 1991 is in the middle here. And there's, you know, just visually, there's just not a difference here in these studies. Um, they're all around the same outcome, 60 to 70%, depending on the year you look at. So the best example of the biggest controversy that occurred in this disease um, happened with this uh, intergroup study uh, that was done as a national study. Essentially, the children's oncology group, or what is the children's oncology group now? And this was a study that was opened between 1993 and 1997. And it included this uh, statistical design. Does any statisticians in the audience? Excellent. So I can say anything about what this <laughs> is without being ripped apart. Um, so, so two by two factorial design um, is a forearm study. And in this case, it was the, it was the common, it was in one arm, it was methotrexate, doxorubicin, and cisplatin. So MAP in one arm, then MAP plus Muramyl tripeptide, which is a uh, biologic agent to increase macrophage activity. And in the lungs, if it was believed if you increase macrophage activity, it will attack microscopic disease and kill the cells. So MTP was added. Then there was MAP plus ifosfamide. Um, and then the last arm was the combination of all of them. So MAP, ifosfamide, and MTP. Now, the statistical model, this is the part that, since there's no statistician, nobody can correct me here. Uh, the statistical model for two by two factorial design assumes that there is no interaction between each of the experimental drugs. So they have to have no interaction between ifosfamide and MTP, essentially, is what you have to assume in the model. So here's where the problem is, uh, where the controversy ensues. So the MAP plus IFOS arm did worse than MAP alone, okay, indicating that somehow ifosamide would make you worse. But if you added MTP to the IFOS, well, you do better than, than either. And so the, the addition of ifosamide appeared to decrease event-free survival, but the addition of MTP increased. And it raised the concern that there was an interaction between IFOS and MTP and essentially created a controversy where people felt that this invalidated the results overall. So just as an example here um, of the survival curve, so there were two studies that were, um, or not two studies, two um, papers that were put out. 
an initial early paper, which Dr. Myers probably deeply regrets that they published, because in the early findings, what the, the numbers that I showed you were where those come from. And so they reported these as early results because it was important to get this data out there. The problem is that over a longer period of time, the curves settled out differently than they did early. Um, and so as they settled out, it was more clear that MTP did give a benefit even in just the MAP MTP arm. The problem was that the controversy was already created. Um, many people questioned the results, including the FDA. Uh, and even though when you look at this survival curve, this result in uh, overall survival was a little bit better in the MTP arm. Um, the conclusions of this study were that the, uh, there was a clear benefit of the lack of, um, I mean, there was a clear demonstration of the lack of benefit of adding ifosamide. But um, it created a controversy around the improvement in, in uh, outcome with the addition of MTP. Um, and MTP in the end was approved by Europe, so their equivalent of the FDA looked at these results and the 2008 results and said this is approved. Our FDA looked at those results, said this was a statistical model that was invalidated and the results were not clear and did not approve it. So um, I remember this well, going to London in 2012 and um, proposing a international study to try and end this controversy where we would just do a two-arm study of MAP versus MAP plus or minus MTP. And, uh, and the pharmaceutical company uh, did not want to supply the drug to redo the study in an international forum. They felt that it was proven to be standard of care. This was even after the European groups, um, which are now aligned with, the, with our North American group, um, said if it's not the standard of care in North America, then it's not the standard of care in Europe and we're not going to use the drug if we don't if we're not all on the same page, and they, they still did not want to commit to doing it. So this uh, European and American groups came together um, and formed this uh, cute uh, Uremos group, um, which is the European and American Osteosarcoma Study Group, um, and formed an international study that uh, looked at uh, two primary questions. Can you improve the prognosis for good responders with the addition of interferon, which is a biologic agent, again, thought to increase um, macrophage activity, and, and this uh, would lead to better prognosis. And can you improve the prognosis for poor responders by adding ifosamide to those patients, adding it into the regimen uh, once you determine their necrosis grading? So there's a bunch of answers that we've now uh, found from this study. So the first was that patients were randomized late, meaning we would wait until their necrosis grading was found and then offer them this randomization. And uh, this therapy is not easy. This is really intensive chemotherapy. Cisplatin, which is part of the mainstay, is the worst emetogenic chemotherapy. Patients are miserable on this therapy. So waiting for them to get a few months, having some kind of major surgery, and then saying, well, what do you think about getting extra six months of, uh, of interferon 
that will continue even after you're done with the next six months of intensive chemotherapy wasn't so attractive. Um, so there were a lot of patients that, that didn't want to be randomized. And so the study took a lot longer to complete than I initially uh, thought. Um, but, uh, well, and, and then what was found in the, in the end was that patients with good necrosis, that there was no difference in the patients that were randomized to interferon. So this was an important but uh, negative study. And then patients with poor necrosis, um, there were unfortunately more patients that couldn't complete therapy due to toxicity um, to ifosamide, and there was no improvement in outcome in the ifosamide group. This is just a, uh, the survival curve, now this is published um, in the poor responder um, group, and the MAP versus um, the group that people call MAPI, because it sounds, it's a very sweet regimen. Um, and uh, there was zero difference between the group in, in long-term outcome, uh, and given that it has more toxicity, it, it doesn't seem like an attractive thing to do. So we uh, should not and do not add ifosamide. I will tell you that um, during my training and up until we really knew these results, there were many times off clinical trials that if we saw poor necrosis, again, a group that then has about a 40 to, you know, somewhere in that 40 to 60% range that we felt like, you know, we got to do something more. And so we were adding ifosamide in. Um, and this question still comes up uh, with each patient that we have that seems to have poor necrosis. Should we add it? Should we add it? And this data demonstrates clearly that we should not add it. We could use it in the setting of relapse because it is an active drug. It just doesn't improve upfront survival um, for patients diagnosed upfront. So conclusions from this study are that um, interferon doesn't improve prognosis. Ifosamide adds toxicity does not improve prognosis. Histologic response may be interesting about prognosis, but the utility of that information is no longer clinically useful and may not have a role in future clinical trials. Um, so what to do with that information is a real challenge. When I get that back, I'm not sure what to say to patients. They all want to know. They've looked on the internet. They hear that necrosis is important, and they want to know that result, but we don't do anything about it. So it's, it's uh, a tough conversation when, you know, for our patients that don't have good prognosis, uh, necrosis. But there were really important lessons learned, um, and this, this you know, is not um, a subtle issue. International collaboration is possible to design a study. That, that was critical, because to get all of these groups, I mean, each one of the countries in, Europe's ha had, in Europe had their own way of doing things. Um, and so to be willing to collaborate and to collaborate with the Children's Oncology Group is, is a huge deal. Um, and that a study could be completed with international collaboration. I think this demonstrated that we all are on the same page. The problem is how do we get to the next trial? How do we find, this is now a long time of clinical trials that have failed to show improvement or controversially have showed improvement and have gotten us nowhere. So due to the lack of success, we need novel therapies. Osteosarcoma has a very complex biology and it's made identification of novel agents more challenging. Big tumor suppressors are involved, P53 and RB, um, ones that I'm sure people in this room have heard of many times. 
um, they're almost always found to be abnormal, but we don't have any way to target those at this point. And the genetic complexity um, is incredible. Uh, there are numerous amplifications, deletions, translocations. We are now proposing, um, and uh, with Ching Lao's arrival and his help, we hope to uh, push forward a study where we even look at intratumor cell-to-cell -cell variation that we think also exists, not just that different people's tumors are different. Um, so that's, that's something that we're um, going to be looking at even here. There's these uh, cadigies, uh, which are these regions of hypermutation, and they can be uh, identified in osteosarcoma, but it's unknown how to target those regions. There's the pediatric preclinical testing program uh, that was developed to try and more rapidly test novel agents in xenograft models um, to help provide preclinical data to push therapies forward. And so that, that mechanism has been really important. The problem is it's not clear whether, to me especially, as I'm going to show you in a few slides, whether the, these models actually do anything to help us or not. Um, I don't know if xenograft models are going to lead to improvement um, or lead to finding any drugs of success, or if it just makes a lot of scientists happy to see preclinical data before they approve testing it in humans. Hard to know. And there are some lessons that we have to live by that we've learned from the past of prior clinical trials. So there was this great study done, uh, AOST06P1, uh, that I was lucky to be involved with. And this involved adding zoledronic acid to multi-agent intensive chemotherapy. There was excellent preclinical data in cell lines and xenograft models. And there were a variety of other cancers that, show, that showed efficacy, including in breast cancer and visceral lesions, um, uh, showed efficacy even with, with zoledronic acid at, at, at points in the past. And the conclusion of this study was that the addition of zoledronic acid to standard chemotherapy was feasible. It was not an efficacy study. It was in relapsed patients, um, and it was feasible. So the next step, naturally, would be to do a phase three study and randomize and see whether it improves survival. But this was rejected, and it was rejected because there was no single agent data in zoledronic acid and osteosarcoma to say that it actually had efficacy. And because we live, and as, we went through between 2006 and, and 2012, let's say, there were economic forces that changed and the resources became more constricting to, to do these kinds of clinical trials. And so the scrutiny to which we're held by is much greater now than it was in 2006. So a phase three study, we could almost guarantee would have been approved had this been a 2000 one study and then a 2006 proposal of a randomized study. But because those resources changed, the ability to do the study changed. But in addition, the concern that was raised at the time was that the only efficacy data was really other tumors that we thought um, would have efficacy or did have efficacy. The problem was that that data was a little bit wishy-washy and around the time that we were proposing this, there was a very large randomized study in a subpopulation of women with breast cancer that was in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that was a negative study. So that negative study basically ended the argument that there's other tumors that respond. Now that was a subgroup of patients and so there still could, I believe, be an argument that, that you 
that that's different than the data that they did have response. And, but at the same time, it's, that's not strong data. And that study you know, was clear that they didn't, in that population of patients, did not have efficacy. And we didn't have osteosarcoma-specific data. There was also less interest for this tumor, uh, for this uh, drug, I mean. And, and so people didn't want to do that efficacy study. We hoped that there would be a more exciting question. And so we thought, well, how do we identify a novel agent? Are there any novel agents that have been assessed in osteosarcoma that can help guide what a success or not a success is? Because how do we define that in, in a population of patients that have relapsed disease? So we looked at um, seven different children's oncology group studies that tested novel agents in, in phase one or phase two setting um, that uh, had osteosarcoma within the patient population. So they might not have been purely an osteosarcoma study, but patients with osteosarcoma could have enrolled. And so this is the uh, cumulative graph here, and this has now been published. Um, and in this uh, curve, you can see, as opposed to the other curves where they actually like plateaued in some real number, these just hit the bottom. Um, and in fact, the, uh, the four-month progression-free survival, so the time to progression, um, at four months, there was only 12% of patients who did not progress by 12 months on each of these. So this is helpful because it tells us that um, that historically patients do um, really poorly, but at least it gives us a number that we can say is the control so that if we're testing in a phase two setting, which is a non-randomized setting typically, and is to assess efficacy, that we have a historical control. You can do a phase two randomized study, but typically these have been um, non-randomized. So we said, well, what if we saw after four months that there was a 40% um, <coughs> progression-free survival. That seems like a big gap, but we're only talking about four months. It seems like if there's a drug that's going to have activity, that this would be a reasonable high bar to meet so that we can then carry that forward to a phase three international study. So this is the curve that we imagine and hope that we would see. The first drug to be put through in this uh, in this new model of, of assessment, try and hit that target and have a single drug is aribulin. Um, and without going through this pretty figure, I will just tell you that this is a, a microtubule inhibitor and it um, had been shown in, again, breast cancer um, seems to be where we find a lot of drugs because of the number of new drugs that are tested. Um, and this was FDA approved in breast cancer, so we know the drug wasn't gonna go anywhere. Um, and it had preclinical data in, uh, in osteosarcoma and other sarcomas, um, in osteosarcoma cell lines. And in the preclinical testing program, there were multiple xenografts that had clear activity. And so we did a phase two study, um, and this included patients with relapsed or refractory disease. And uh, it was easy to give the drug and well tolerated. And there was a lot of excitement nationally to... Um, to get patients on this study. So we would uh, enroll 19 patients, and if there were more than four patients with stable disease, only four, we would continue enrollment to 29. Um, and uh, in fact, we said if there was even one patient with what we call a resist response, so that's a, a radiographic response where you get a, uh, a shrinkage of the tumor. 
which is typical. Most cancers, we expect we're going to see response defined by shrinkage. But osteosarcoma has a bone matrix to it, and typically you don't see the tumor shrink. So stable disease is the mark that we care about. If it shrinks, though, that's incredible. That would be outstanding. So we, we set that um, bar a little lower. We expected only uh, one to two patients a month to enroll. And because there was so much excitement, you can see um, the red line here is the expected enrollment curve. And what really happened was that, um, that five to six patients enrolled a month, um, so five times the expected accrual. And it enrolled in like a six-week period. So it took two years to write this study, and we um, accrued enough patients to make a determination in six weeks. Um, and unfortunately, there were no patients that had a response, and there were zero patients that had progression-free survival at four months. So that's uh, unfortunate. This is the horrible survival curve from the study. Um, overall survival is out here. And, uh, and the event-free survival, which is the progression-free survival, is here. And you can see it, it, you know, nobody made it to four months. Um, some patients went on to get different therapies and tried different things, so they survived a little bit longer. So that, that's, that raises a lot of questions, um, including how good is that preclinical pediatric testing model? If no patients responded and that's the model that we're using, is it really the right model? And we don't know the answer to that. It's believed to be the best model that we do have, but, um, but certainly raises the question. But we shouldn't stop there. There are more drugs and more targets that are being identified. Um, denosumab is a rank li ligand inhibitor, and this uh, is used um, not just in old um, people with osteoporosis, but is used in uh, tumors and in giant cell tumor, there was efficacy shown in a phase two setting. Um, and so this target is present in osteosarcoma and there's a currently open study that we're enrolling um, that includes uh, the use of denosumab. It's easy to give, no toxicity really associated with it other than some electrolyte abnormalities. Um, and uh, it um, is done by subcutaneous injection um, and tolerated well. Anti-GD2, we just enrolled um, our first patient at Connecticut Children's on this study. Um, and this uh, drug is, uh, targets uh, GD2, which is expressed on most osteosarcoma cells. And there is in good in vitro data with response. And when borrowing from other diseases, this is a wonderful example of uh, um, a drug that in the disease of neuroblastoma showed an incredible uh, improvement in a randomized setting of improved prognosis, um, changing that disease prognosis from 40 to 50 to 60 percent five-year event-free survival due to this drug alone. And so that same hope uh, we'll see with osteosarcoma uh, if that happens. And then there's this drug glembatumumab vedotin, um, and it targets a protein that's present called osteoactivin and that's present in high levels of osteosarcoma cells. And again, this had a xenograft um, model demonstrating maintained clinical response. So there's a lot of excitement about all of these new drugs, but you know, will the model that we're basing it on work? We, we don't know. So I just wanted to make a few conclusions um, from all this uh, data and controversy. So over the past 40 years, there's been great improvements in the treatment of osteosarcoma. The, 
problem is that it was all made 40 years ago. <laughs> um, the biggest improvement that's continued is in surgical techniques and quality of life, but not in survival. And the recognition that micrometastatic disease, the introduction of multi-aging chemotherapy and complex surgical procedures have improved survival and quality of life overall. But the progress that we made in the 70s and uh, early 80s has now stalled. To make further progress, we need improved understanding of biology. We need to increase our international collaboration and streamline our resources. Novel agents need to be assessed rapidly and consistently to determine efficacy. And then we need to assess feasibility of combination with chemotherapy and then get it into the phase three setting in upfront patients. And once, uh, once we do uh, assess that, once we prove that, then we can do randomized trials um, to see if we can improve outcome.